0: I know this program is 70 over 70, but uh, I really wish I were younger. I wish I were 70, but I am ready.
1: I'm 72 years old. I'm
0: 75, miraculously enough. I am 83 years old. I am 88 years old. You know, I'm here at 92. I'll be 94 in May. I am 101 years old. My name is Annalie Fisher, uh, I live in Houston, and I'm about to be 72 in August. You know, as I look back on the way I made career decisions um, when I was younger, I always like to emphasize that you have to just learn to figure out what it is that you want, and you have to find your peace with you are and what you've accomplished. I wanted to be an astronaut ever since I was 12 years old. That was what I'd always dreamed about. And many years later, when I found out that NASA was looking for astronauts for this new space shuttle program, um, I jumped at the chance. I was very fortunate to be in the first group of astronauts uh, ever selected for the space shuttle program. And also in the first group of women ever selected for the US program. The hardest thing about launching into space was, of course, leaving my daughter Kristen. All you have to do is go back and look at video of rocket launches and see them blow up to to, to know that there's risk. When I left to go into space, from the moment the rockets ignite, it's approximately eight and a half minutes. And in an instant, when those engines shut off, you are weightless. And just the, the colors of the Caribbean, for example, watching the clouds, looking at the mountains, looking at the stars, looking at that incredible view was unbelievable. After we returned from our space flight and went back to Houston, My first words to my husband were, it was all worth it. The risk of leaving Kristen, leaving him, um, it was all worth it. Within a month after we landed, the Challenger accident happened, and my husband and I realized uh, very quickly that it was going to be several years before we flew again, and so... When my second daughter, Kara, was born, um, I decided at the time to take a leave of absence. I love my career, I love being an astronaut, but I always asked myself, you know, what decisions would I regret at the end of my life? And I did not want to regret not staying home with my girls while they were young. And um, you know, I have friends that flew in space seven times. Would I have wanted to fly seven times? of course. But, you know, life is full of tough choices. (laughs) I firmly believe that sometimes you don't get your exact dream, but sometimes along the way, you discover a different dream. You know, I only flew once, but nonetheless, I was still an astronaut. And when I eventually did decide to go back to NASA, it it turned out that I was really the right person at the right time to have a leadership role as chief of the space station. So for me, I found the right balance of my career, satisfaction, and my family. Now for another person, that might not have been the right balance. But I think you really need to um, find your own perspective and not be guided By what the outside world tells you is the right thing to do. You have to find what is the right thing for you.
1: That was Anna Lee Fisher. And from Pineapple Street Studios, this is 70 Over 70, a show about making the most of the time we have left. I'm Max Linsky. My guest this week is Bob Iger, the former CEO and current executive chairman of the Walt Disney Company. By basically any metric, Bob is one of the most successful CEOs in history. On his second day in the job, he proposed that Disney buy Pixar from Steve Jobs, an acquisition no one thought was possible and very few people thought was wise. That was followed by Marvel and Star Wars, and most recently, most of the Fox empire, By the time he stepped down as CEO last winter, Disney was worth about five times more than it was when he took over. It's a staggering run, but maybe even more impressive is where it started, at the very bottom of the ladder, moving furniture around on the sets of ABC soap operas. That was 47 years ago, and he's been with the company in one role or another ever since. But on January 1st, 2022, just a few months from now, Bob is gonna leave Disney. He won't stay on as a board member or as an advisor. He's making a clean break. And while there was so much about his time leading Disney that I was curious about, particularly how he balanced personal relationships with the demands of a business that big, it's what's gonna come next for Bob that I wanted to understand. How do you step off the stage when the lights have been that bright? What does it feel like to know that for the first time in decades, you'll no longer be the most powerful person in every room? Basically, I wanted to know how after a job like that, you just go back to being yourself. Bob Iger is 70 years old. Bob Iger, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Can I ask you an Apple Watch question before we start? Sure. Are you like uh, focused on the
2: rings? Yes.
1: Do you care about it?
2: Very much. But same. I'm very competitive, though. Do you change the goals? No, I don't set any goals.
1: You don't. So you just you close them out, but they're just the. I sort don't of, set
2: goals, but I'm ridiculously competitive with myself.
1: I'm wired the exact same way, but I can't. Uh, I don't know how high to set the goals.
2: I don't do that. But here, what I do is this is today, by the way. It's pretty good. You already closed your uh, your I did ring. A Twenty mile ride this morning. That's outrageous. I thought that maybe we should save this, but, but we can go back to it. That, when, that as I aged, I would become less neurotic about certain things, I would <laughs> yeah. care a little less, and I'm, I've convinced myself that that is the case, but it's not evident in my behavior. <laughs> so Wait. somehow or another, I'm fooling myself into thinking that I'm not, in other words, like what the hell is the difference if I don't work out on a given day? Like, right, right, well, one that, day. Yeah, but, it doesn't matter to anyone else, but, 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 to, but to me. But the neurotic me somehow or another has convinced myself that if I don't work out, something's wrong or bad or whatever.
1: Right. You fucked up somehow.
2: It's a terrible obsession.
1: And uh, exercise is a uh, big part of your life? Every day. Every day, twice a day is my understanding.
2: Well, with COVID, um, you know, there are some benefits to shut down (laughs) and not commuting and not getting on a plane and flying someplace every week. So I have had more time and I've used it to exercise more. But mostly what I do is I'll take a long walk. There are hills in the neighborhood that I live in, Southern California. So I can get a good between three and five mile walk in every evening, early evening.
1: That connects to the first thing I wanted to ask you, which is I, I told a lot of people that I was going to do this interview and almost everyone was like, hey, he can't possibly be 70. And so I wonder what what it was like turning 70 for you.
2: Pretty uneventful. I do get a sense that uh, things are happening or, the, or or that life is passing me by at a, at a faster pace. But other than that, turning 70 was no different than turning 69 and Frankly, turning 60 wasn't a big event, nor was 50. And it's just not, I've never been obsessed with either aging or milestones.
1: The thing you were saying earlier about how time is moving in a different way for you now, like, how how does that work? How does that feel? How is time speeding up?
2: Well, it mostly, I, I feel it in looking backward that the time between. A variety of different intervals seems to be compressed. So when I think about 60, it seems like weeks ago that mm-hmm. I had dinner with friends and family for my 60th birthday and <laughs> uh, and the decade passed like with a snap of a finger. It was an active decade for me and a lot happened in my life, but um, the interval feels very short to me. Mm-hmm. It seemed even more profound this time around. And I, I've wondered whether that is a function of aging in some form, whether older people feel like time passes quickly, mostly because we're looking back. I think as people age, maybe you end up looking more behind than ahead. Mm -hmm. Because look, in fairness, there's less time ahead than there
1: was behind. Right. Well, I think that's part of what I was wondering is like, is is that time sort of feeling shorter because you're also aware that there's less of it.
2: Yeah. It, it also, it just may be a function of past versus the future. I think if you ask any young person, you know, tell me about the next five years, it's an eternity to them. Or even someone starting out in college mm-hmm. and they think about graduating, it's, that's so far out. Yet when they graduate and they look back, it's like yesterday that they were freshmen. Right. And I, and I think that just, in some form or another, as people age, that sense of compression of things happening faster gets even more profound. I well, was, by the way, also turning 70 in a pandemic. So I'm not a believer in big parties anyway for mm-hmm. myself. So if there were no pandemic, I'm not sure we would have done much. But when you can't really go out and do anything, yeah. uh, it makes it even less meaningful in a way.
1: Why don't you like big parties for yourself?
2: I don't mind going to other people's parties. <laughs> I just never like going to my own.
1: Do you not like being like the center of attention?
2: Uh... I'm the center of attention a lot in my work. And I think in all likelihood, because of that, I'd prefer not to be the center of attention any more than I have to be.
1: Hmm. I read your book and there's a line that ends a chapter that basically says anything that can remind you that you're not the center of attention is something to hold on to. In the job that, that you've had, my assumption is that for most of the last 15 years you have been the center of every room you've been in how do you not let yourself feel like the world's revolving around you
2: well by reminding yourself constantly that you're just passing through that it's all being borrowed or leased (laughs) and it's not owned and not owned forever and i've been mindful of that for quite a long time in part because I watched uh, my predecessor at Disney, Michael Eisner, who was the CEO for 21 years, leave that role, mm-hmm. and you know, right before my eyes, and very proximate to me. And when you witness that, you see suddenly someone going from what do you call it, a king of the world position to a civilian. (laughs) I I joke often when I'm a civilian, you know. Um, And suddenly there's no, you don't have your office, you don't have your title, you don't have the support system that exists to enable a CEO of a large global company to manage their their lives. And so I've been very mindful of the fact that one day, now in this case, (laughs) one day very, very soon, the lease will be up and um, all of that will be gone. Is that
1: sort of relationship with the lease, does that, like, uh, does that fluctuate? Like, were there moments where you were less connected to that idea or, or more connected to it?
2: I've always been connected to the idea, and I'm actually quite comfortable with it. The one thing that I do feel, though, is, you know, you, you, to have a job like this and to do it well, you have to be thoroughly engaged in it. It does become very much not only a part of your life, but almost your life yeah. for that period of time. Um, and so every once in a while, I get forlorn about, hey, they know this. I won't be doing this. We have a movie coming out in December called West Side Story. It's a remake, Steven Spielberg's remake of the famous West Side Story of the early 60s. And I watched the film a few times, once with him, engaged heavily in dialogue with him about it. And I think it's probably the last movie that we will release in while I'm employed at the the Walt Disney Company. And when I think about that, I think, wow, there won't be another one for me after that. And there's a sadness to that, by letting go of that experience. Mm -hmm. But I'm completely prepared, at least so I believe, (laughs) But we'll see on January 1, for it all to end. And I think, again, because there was an inevitability to that, that, you know, that's a whole other thing, is it would be very easy to have the job and believe it's yours forever well, that's just impractical. Is it easy to believe that? Yeah, because you can get very, very used to all of the, they call them trappings, you know, and it's the attention and it's the excitement and, you know, the adrenaline rush that it represents and that sense that you're the center of the universe and you've got all this power and influence. And sure, easily could happen. I was sort of
1: waiting for you to say power. And I think that's part of what I'm interested in is like, how do you think about your relationship? to this power that you've held for 15 years?
2: I don't really care at all about the power.
1: Is that easy to say because you have all of it?
2: Possibly. I don't know. I've had it for a while, I guess. I don't know. I, that's been completely meaningless to me. But other than, the, let's say, the power to be a force of good in the world, there's been no other aspect of power that has been meaningful to me at all in this whole experience. Nothing. Nothing... You know, and I guess with that, you know, the power to influence people's careers, mm-hmm. um, you know, the power to give people opportunities, of course that has value. You know, I always used to laugh at the list of the most powerful people in Hollywood. And um, it's hard when you, when you grow up in this business, which I did, and you see those lists every year and you think, oh, wow, look at that, that person there, the number one, number three. And then suddenly you find yourself atop <laughs> that list, you know. And you discover quickly, it's totally meaningless.
1: That, that kind of thing just can't make you whole.
2: No. Then no satisfaction. No satisfaction. No. When you look in the mirror in the morning and you see your title on your forehead, you know, it's over. That's not who you are. It's mm-hmm. not the title. You know, you, yes, you're given that title while you have the job. But if that's what you are, then you're in deep trouble. If you believe, you know, if the title right. precedes you. Right And unfortunately, or maybe sometimes fortunately, because it can have some value, when you walk into a room and everybody, oh, there's, they don't say there's Bob Iger, they say there's the CEO of Disney. Or at least they tie the two together. I'm not the CEO anymore, by the way. Right. But um, I'm I'm quite mindful of that. What So what? (laughs) That's going to end. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: in your book, there's lots and lots of themes and sort of consistent ideas. And, and what we're talking about is is one of them, I think. But another one is about risk. And the way that I understand your time as CEO was was that it was defined by risks. But there's this moment, what, look, four months into being CEO where you buy Pixar, which is a deal you have to like convince the entire board mm-hmm. to take seriously. People thought it was nuts, certainly like, your legacy depends on that, right? I'm interested in, in this like, next stage of your life that's coming on January 1st, whether there are going to be risks available to you in this stage of your life.
2: I actually, I don't know. Um, right now, the, the canvas is completely blank, unpainted. You don't have plans? No, I don't. I don't. Mostly, interestingly enough, the the risks that I'm mindful of are more reputational in nature. Is that as I have a, a many opportunities to associate myself with other companies and new businesses and new ventures, it's really making sure that I don't put my reputation on the line in that process. Because one thing that I am both proud of and that I really value that I have a I have a good reputation, and I that's. It's interesting, it's not title that has value to me, reputation does.
1: How would you articulate what your reputation is?
2: I think it's a collection of things. The success of Disney Mm -hmm. during my tenure. I think I was able to do it by showing a lot of respect for people. It's not that everybody has liked me and I've had some tough relationships along the way. I had to fire people for instance, but I think overall people would say that I'm a decent person. And I like that. I'm I'm not just a hard ass. (laughs) Um, I think probably more than anything is that I've exhibited an interest in and a care about people, particularly those that work for me.
1: I mean, I guess the answer to this question is is no, but it's being nice and being decent. Is that at all at odds with running the biggest media company in the world? It wasn't for me. You must over the years, you must have known a lot of incredibly successful assholes.
2: Yeah. (laughs) None that I could name. Sure. I've met some of them.
1: I'm not asking you to name names, but I've encountered some incredibly successful assholes in my life. And I I believe that they think that those two things are fundamentally connected. Right. Which is
2: why they're assholes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't, I've never quite understood that. Like, what good does that do them? So there's, they're tough and they... What, hold no, they, they take no prisoners? What's the, I mean, no one roots for them. You, in fact, everybody roots against them. How mm-hmm. is that good? I wanted people to root for me. And there are times when you, in these jobs with this responsibility, you have to make choices, make decisions that sometimes can inflict pain on other people. I mean, severing someone, firing someone, a for instance.
1: How did you fire people?
2: I tried to fire people by having as much empathy as possible. Tried to be very, very honest with people, but not mean. Um, just to give you an idea, someone comes in your office, they may not even know why they're there. So I tried to cut to the chase. I tried to be very straightforward with them. Listen, you know, come in, you're in here for for a meeting that's not going to be pleasant for you. And the other thing I've noticed people do is this: they'll say to someone that they're going to fire, this is really difficult for me. Why do you say that to someone who you're going to fire? It's going to be much more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding that. I never say that, boy, this is really hard for me. (laughs) I I will say there are a few times, not in the very recent past, because it's been a while, but when I said to myself, after I, I, I let someone go, I hope this is the last time I have to do this. I hated doing that. Um, I think I, I actually scared myself because I think I got better at it along the way, but it's not necessarily a badge of honor to be great at firing people. And actually I then felt guilty when I, when I reached the conclusion that, hey, I've really gotten good at this. You know. What did
1: getting better at it look like? Like if it didn't get easier, what did-
2: Well, getting better at it was, was first of all, doing it on a timely basis, not procrastinating. Yeah. I, I did that once. I fired someone at Disney on a Friday, and uh, um, they didn't have to leave right away, so they came to work on Monday. And he asked me a question, I'm just curious, why did you fire me on Friday? And I said, why are you asking? And he said, it's a, the worst day to fire somebody, because you then have the weekend, and there's no distraction. And, and I, I paused for a minute, and I said, let me tell you why I fired you on Friday. I intended to fire you last week. I came in on Monday and I chickened out. On Tuesday, I chickened out. Same thing happened on Wednesday and Thursday. On Friday, it's the last day I had, and I promised myself I was going to do it last week. <laughs> I ran out of time. So I apologize, but I was, it, it was true. Who looks forward to that? So getting good at it was getting to it trying really hard to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, even to the point where I realize I'm, I'm sitting across from someone who's sitting in a chair and I'm thinking, what would be like to sit in that chair and be told you no longer have a job at a company you may have loved in a job you may have loved.
1: That idea, how it feels to be in the other seat and particularly trying to figure out like the story that the other person is telling themselves. That's the thing that comes up again and again in the book too, right? Like, Steve Jobs, over and over again, you were willing to meet people where they were, but there was another piece of it that I I was struck by, which it felt like at several moments you held your own desires or fears or concerns really close to the vest. Do you think that those things were like connected at all? By which I mean, like you were so focused on what the other person wanted that you also knew it would be in some way to your advantage to not let other people know where you were at?
2: No, no. Um, I think each situation has been different, but putting yourself in someone else's shoes or head and understanding where they're coming from, particularly as it related to, since you used them as examples, the acquisitions, um, it was trying to figure out what was the best way to convince those people to sell their companies to us. And the best way to do it, aside from what became the obvious in each case, which was what are the economics, is to also figure out, is there, are there emotions that you need to focus on? Is there other value?
1: I mean, at some point in the scale in which you were playing, like, no one really needs the money.
2: No, correct. But sometimes even if you don't need it, you may want more of it.
1: Sure. And it's connected to a thing that feels like, very, very present in all those rooms, which is ego. Yeah. Does that feel off to you?
2: No, well, there's ego too, but there was nothing in it. There was no ego at all on the table with, with Steve, for instance, in selling Pixar, none. Can you tell the story of that walk that you
1: guys took right before the announcement?
2: Sure. We uh, announced that we were buying Pixar in the early part of 2006. It was either late January, first week in February. And we were making the announcement from Pixar, the Pixar headquarters in Emeryville, California. And so I flew up with the team from Disney to make the announcement, put the announcement out and do a press conference and also meet with all Pixar employees. And obviously, Steve was there too. We were making the announcement when the stock market closed, so one o'clock West Coast time. And about an hour before, about 12, I was in a conference room at Pixar prepping with my team. And Steve came to the door and said, have you got a minute? Can we take a walk? And I looked at my general counsel who was sitting with me and I said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what does this mean? The moment of dread that I had was that he was going to back out of the deal Mm -hmm. or try to retrade something, you know, negotiate more. Steve was capable of doing some mercurial things. And so we went for a walk. And there was a bench, there's a nice walking path at Pixar, and there was a nice little bench, wooden bench, and we sat down on the bench, and he actually had his arm behind me. And we had a nice relationship at that point already. It got a lot, we became a lot closer as the years passed. But I had no idea where he was going. And he looked me in the eye, and he said, I'm going to tell you something only my wife and my doctors know. And I said, what's that? And he said... My cancer is back. And I asked him, why are you telling me this? And he said, I'm telling you this because I want to give you a chance to back out of the deal. Because he he was going to become a member of the Disney board and our largest shareholder. And I said, Steve, I, I don't think that that's an excuse to back out of the deal. I don't think that's a reason. And of course, in the back of my mind, this is in the post-Enron world, and I was very mindful of what responsibility I might have had to shareholders to be fully forthcoming and transparent, hmm. that if Steve potentially not being around was material to the deal, was would I be committing a fraud of sorts on our shareholders? But because I had pledged confidentiality, it's not like I could ask anybody for advice. So I asked him, and this is all happening in very real time. It's now the clock is ticking. It's 30 minutes till go time, till this press release is going out. And we're 15 minutes away from the building at this point.
1: It's also by far the biggest move you've ever made in your career.
2: It was a $7.3 billion acquisition. Yeah, it (sighs) it was a big move. So I asked him a few other questions. I asked him specifically about the cancer. I asked him what his doctors were saying about the you know, prognosis, and he said, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to live for five years. And in describing it, he said, you know, my son Reed is going to graduate from high school in, I think he said, four years. And he said, I'm going to be there. And when he said that, there was some, he had a, you know, Steve was just such a, a force. There was a resolve, there was a, a commitment to living hmm. that was so powerful that, I just felt comfortable saying to him, Steve, there's no way we're backing out of this deal. Let's go back to, and and let's announce it. But this is inside me at this point. And um, and, there are a few things that have happened in my life that are uh, in business, really, that were momentous moments. And there's always something that happens around the same time that causes me to have one kind of a public face and a private face, Mm -hmm. an exterior and interior, sort of. And I, what, I, what was going on inside me that day, as excited as I seemed outside, was a, I was just kind of a mess. One, I wasn't sure I was even doing the right thing. Secondly, I obviously felt terrible for him. I mean, it was a very emotional moment. For him to make the decision to tell me it was a huge thing. Yeah, you know, I, I considered Steve a not only a you know, business colleague, but a really close friend. And losing him was very difficult. Because it was just a relationship I never expected, and you know, later in life you don't expect to. You expect to make f- some friends and a lot of acquaintances, but you don't really expect to make a forge a really deep friendship with someone. You know, in your fifties, at least I didn't, and yet I had, and it represented a huge loss. There was something almost more powerful in the relationship because it was such a good, such a strong relationship, and yet such a brief relationship. Mm.
1: I think that's why I wanted you to tell that story was that moment sitting on the bench and there's just so much going on in that
2: moment. Yeah, by the way, what I didn't tell you, we walk back to the Pixar building for the release to base someone to hit send and a release goes out to the world. Mm. And then suddenly the two of us are standing in front of cameras and there's a press conference. Right. And he and I never said a word to one another. From the moment we got up from the bench till we were standing in front of the press, we never, we, it was dead, we never talked. Wow. And I went back and I remember my team going like, you know, what was that about? <laughs> like, said, is he asking for another billion dollars? I, or I said, you know, I looked at my watch at that point. I think we're five minutes away from this thing. I said everything is fine. You know, it's, it was a very meaningful, charged kind of uh, moment.
1: Yeah, and I guess the thing I wanted to ask is about how you absorb that charge. You know, like another aspect of your reputation is that you are in control, that you're calm. How do you do that? Like, how do you you hold everything that's going on in that moment, still deliver the speech you need to give?
2: You know, I think when you lead, and to lead effectively, you are always balancing frequently countervailing dynamics. You know, for instance, in a crisis, you've always got to collect knowledge and be deliberate, but you have to act with haste or speed or on a timely basis. It's one example of that. And I think one of the dynamic or opposite dynamics you have to deal with is you've got to manage a public persona and a private. You know, you've got to appear one way, even if you're feeling another deep inside you. It's compartmentalizing, I guess, in some form. And sometimes it becomes really acute, meaning the Um, The contrast between one side and the other is extreme, but you don't have the luxury, really, of not contending with that. And you've got to figure out that I guess it's a balance.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of wondering how, like, uh, you don't like, um, you know, at some point just kind of like fall over from them colliding all the time.
2: You don't have the luxury. You know, you've got to get up every day and put the uniform on and go out on the field and (laughs) you know play your. You don't actually have have to best game. You, you, there's a lot expected of you. If you're, if you're running a company as large as Disney that is on a world stage, mm-hmm. you're responsible for so much that you don't have the luxury of, of ever really turning it off.
1: What do you mean, Ed, what, turning what off?
2: The whole thing. I mean, in other words, you can't distance yourself. You, you can't, um, I guess you can call a, a brief timeout, using an <laughs> analogy, but it's very brief. There's just no such thing as taking yourself out of the action.
1: Unless you take yourself out of the action.
2: Well, I'm doing that. Yeah. But it's all or nothing. That's my point. Right. You can't You, you can't be half in. Not do it right. Not be responsible. No. And how, I don't think people quite appreciate that. It's interesting of thinking about it a little bit as it relates to um, the transition that I'm going through. And thinking back on this experience. I became CEO. I was named in March of 05. And October 1, 2005, I stepped into the job. And in reality, I've not had a day off since then. I know that I haven't. There's not one day when I didn't engage in work-related matters. And I'm not just talking about doing one email. I'm talking about not only feeling the responsibility, but engaging in something, you know, doing the homework and connecting with people and being mindful of what's going on in the world as it, it affects Disney, it does not stop, which is, you know, one of the motivating forces behind my deciding to step down. Still, I still had energy and I still was having fun. And I think I can, I can say unequivocally that things were still going well, just time. Time to find time, right?
1: Because time's getting
2: shorter. Go back to that. Yeah, I guess so.
1: There are so few moments, virtually none, in your book where I found you regretful. Like maybe this is Zen in the Art of Running the Walt Disney Corporation. But do you have regrets?
2: I don't. I don't have any regrets that cause me to either lose sleep or to distract me very much. I'm, yes, sure, there are some regrets, but they're not acute regrets. There are some. How's that possible? Not to have regrets? Yeah. Or to have them? <laughs> not to have them. I, I mean, mean, I don't
1: think I, if, if they don't keep you up at night, you don't worry about them very much. I don't think well, they can. Well, can't count. do anything about them.
2: Yeah, sure. Look, if I could do it all over again, you know, would I do it differently? Probably not. Probably not. It worked out okay.
1: I wonder if, if that's because there weren't moments where you felt like you didn't live up to that reputation that means so much to you? maybe, maybe that's what I'm asking. Like, were, are there any moments where you weren't the person you wanted to be?
2: Yeah, sure, there are a few. I'm a human being, but none that I care to discuss.
1: But also none
2: that weigh on you too much no
1: are you a spiritual person
2: i'm not a big believer in things like everybody has a destiny and i'm not a religious person i'm capable of spending quiet time with my thoughts and and, and there are other elements of my life too i guess i would put in the spiritual category but not that defined i can't define that for myself I think I ask because you seem um, very at peace. I am at peace.
1: So, uh, if you're at peace at 70, you're going to step away in full a couple months from now, mm-hmm. time's collapsing a little bit. What do you want out of what comes
2: next? Well, first of all, I'm extremely excited about having a blank canvas. I have not had one. In my life really yeah i joke to people i haven't had a summer off since eighth grade is there anything daunting about that it's not daunting to me i'm very excited about it i will have to find things to do i know enough about myself to know that i cannot go from whatever 60 to zero in this case is like mock speed to zero yeah with a snap of a finger that that would be too jarring that there would be things that will necessarily have to occupy my time but I've talked to a few people that have gone through this transition. And I actually have spoken to a number of people recently about it. And everyone's advice is pretty consistent. And that is don't commit to too many things before you go. Don't fill up
1: the canvas immediately. N-
2: no, because if one of the reasons to step down is so that you have a blank canvas, is so you have time to either smell the roses yeah. or. You know, breathe the air, and I talk often about you know, not having a, this endless to-do list. We talked earlier about you know, being competitive. I am extremely competitive. That takes a huge amount of time, energy, and thought, a lot. I know that the, you know, there's a constancy of some kind of adrenaline generation within me to be so, as competitive as I am. I'm looking forward to being relieved of that and not caring about winning, for instance. Um, So I would say right now, do I have some anxiety about it? Yes. But am I anxious about it? Am I, I mean deeply anxious or losing sleep? No. I'm actually far more curious. Now, I could end up a day later thing. what the heck did I do? <laughs> but I'm very curious about what it's going to be like. What will it be like when I don't have this title? Will it be exactly what I expect that I'm, I've am i been Bob Iger all along, and I'm still <laughs> going to be Bob Iger, and that title is truly meaningless? Maybe I'll discover afterward that it actually did mean something. <laughs> I don't know.
1: But you're excited to figure it out.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm excited to experience it. I hope I can figure it out.
1: 70 Over 70 is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, and it's produced by Jess Hackle. Our associate producer is Janelle Anderson. Our editors are Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Joel Lovell. Research and additional reporting by Charlie Locke. Our mixers are Raj Makija and Elliot Adler. And Jenna Weiss-Berman and I are the executive producers. Our theme song is Like a Dream by Francis and the Lights. And the music you're listening to right now is by Arthur Russell, who would have been 70 this year. Original music by Terence Bernardo, additional music by Noble Kids, and music licensing by Dan Kanishkawi. Our cover art is by Myra Coleman, who's 72. And our episode art is by Lynn Staley. She's 73, and she's also my mom. Thank you, Anna Lee Fisher. And thank you, Bob Iger. I'm Max Linsky. Thanks for listening.
0: It's a lie that It's a lie wild-